Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I just wanted to share a brief thought before you start with this week's episode. Many of you may not realize this, but Buddhist Geeks is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. We made the switch to being a nonprofit at the end of last year after a couple years of planning this, and we're really happy to have switched to an organizational form that seems to fit our mission and vision much more. And over the next month, we've set a goal to raise $20,000 up front, as well as a recurring amount of $1,000 a month through our Patreon account. And we're using this money to help fund our core operations. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're using the money for, what we're up to, what we're doing, the kind of impact that we've been having, you can go to BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash give and check it out. And on that page, um, you could make a small recurring gift. This could be as little as $2 a month. Uh, Or if you're in a position to make a more significant tax-deductible contribution, you can also give uh, a one-time amount there. So again, this is at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. We really appreciate your support. Um, As long as we have it, we're going to continue to do our best to push the edge on exploring how Buddhism in the 21st century can really serve one another, can really shine a light on each other. And uh, again, we just really appreciate you tuning in to listen to uh, these explorations and also for your support. Take care. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm here today joined over Skype with a very special guest. I'm here today with Michael Heim. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist Geeks today. Glad to do it. Yeah, thank you. And um, just a little bit of background for those uh, who haven't been exposed to your work before. Um, You're a philosopher uh, of cyberspace and virtuality, which we'll get into. And uh, you're a professor and author. Um, You've written several books. One of them was uh, Electric Language. The next was uh, The Metaphysics of Virtual Reality and another on Virtual Realism. And you're also, uh, and, and people will see why uh, I was so excited to bring you on the show and talk to you, also a longtime Tai Chi Chuan practitioner and teacher. Um, so today we're really going to be kind of getting into and exploring um, virtual reality, virtual worlds, and the contemplative and embodied nature of human experience with someone who's really spent a number of decades uh, studying both. So really exciting to, uh, to get into this with you today. And I wanted to start by just uh, finding out a little bit about your interesting kind of dual background. Um, Often on the show, we talk with people who have a background in two different fields or even multiple different fields that seem quite different from one another. And yet uh, the convergence of those areas tends to lead to some really interesting perspectives and projects. Um, And so I was wondering if you could start by kind of sharing a bit about your background, both with philosophy. Um, You've kind of specialized, I guess, in the philosophy of cyberspace and virtuality, and also um, as a practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan and a teacher of that. 
Yes. Well, I began my studies of philosophy with an interest in Heidegger, Martin Heidegger. In fact, they translated uh, one of his books called The Metaphysical Foundations of Logic. And I had studied in Germany as a Fulbright scholar, and that gave me the linguistic background to translate to German and to uh, have some time to spend a couple of years in Freiburg, uh, where Heidegger was uh, at the time in retirement. But uh, his background had often dipped into Asian philosophy, Eastern philosophy, but he never let it out. Uh, he was fearful of the, uh, the opprobrium of, at the time, in his lifetime, uh, that they felt towards uh, anything that was not scientific and clear. And, of course, uh, the Taoist tradition is not that clear uh, in terms of Western logic. But then again, of course, we have the I Ching, which has fascinated me from its logical point of view uh, for many years. And um, only recently have I had really uh, strong breakthroughs to understand the I Ching uh, by way of the Western European tarot. But at any rate, so my interest in philosophy has always been kind of trying to understand the trajectory of Western thinking while keeping another eye on the Eastern modes of thought. Uh, it seemed to me clear that Western philosophy had a wonderful surface and was very powerful. At the same time, it became clear to me after years of teaching logic that there's something deeper in logic that influences people's decisions and choices, that influences their potential for wisdom. And so if you look for wisdom traditions, uh, the Western philosophy has only one half of the whole holistic sphere of, of thinking. And Asian or Eastern philosophy has the other half. So there is a yin-yang uh, that's foundational to, uh, a, I think, the human spirit that includes the mind and, and our whole individual selves. So my interest in Western philosophy, starting with Heidegger, did have a kind of peripheral and increasing awareness of Asian or Eastern philosophy. And Taoism has always fascinated me. The poetry of Taoism uh, and of the Tao Te Ching were, were very strong influences on me. And also studies in the I Ching, seeing the beauty and the logic of the I Ching and how it could portray and infinite possibilities of situations. But uh, my first experience with the encounter of, with technology was with the electronic typewriter. When a professor I knew had a simple brother typewriter that would allow one line of the LCD to be seen before it would be committed to paper. So I went out and explored what could be done in terms of what we now call word processing. And I began with a Model 100 from Radio Shack and uh, eight-line screen. But it was wonderful to be able to, to write on this kind of liquid text that wasn't committed to paper. So the whole notion that words could be virtual, uh, writing could be virtual before it was committed to the physical world, this was really uh, a mind opener to me. So I wrote a book about it because I could see that it was changing the way I was thinking and formulating my thoughts. 
And so I wrote a book called Electric Language, a Philosophical Study of Word Processing. So the people who were interested in that book were mainly uh, engineers and technology people, not so much philosophers. They, they couldn't, philosophers had a hard time getting their head around what I could be saying when I said that this writing, computerized writing, is changing the way we think. This was not something philosophers were comfortable entertaining, but engineers understood this better. So I began looking more at virtual technology seen through the eyes of engineers. And they showed me what they were working on. This was the late 80s, or well, mid to late 80s. And so I saw a lot of uh, the prototype virtual realities. To me, this is the first wave of virtual, virtual reality. Uh, some of the headset, heavy headsets and so on. Uh, some of the 3D that was pretty crude and blocky uh, images. But I could get the idea that this was going to develop over time. So I began writing about that, and The Metaphysics of Virtual Reality was the book that came out of that. And I could see, though, that there was something troubling about losing your body awareness to think you were somewhere else in a headset, visiting a virtual world. And so I began to realize that my interest in Tai Chi was somewhat of a either conflicting or complementary uh, interest. Now, of course, I was familiar with Dao's poetry, the beauty of uh, some of their uh, appreciations of nature and awareness of how we are one as a unified world. Uh, this struck me as, uh, as very powerful and beautiful. And the, the awareness also, like, for example, in Buddhist Vipassana meditation, where there's this focus on our being physically present, that was, to me, a problem when I put it alongside virtual reality and that experience I was having with engineers. So that began this uh, larger, uh, you know, obviously I enjoy problems and things that are seemingly contradictory. So, uh, because it gets my philosophical juices going and makes me look with greater awe and wonder at this uh, physical experience, this world we are in right now. So, I began to see my role in Tai Chi as a way of removing body amnesia, by which I mean we forget that we have a body, for the most part, uh, especially in Western culture where we are driving from place to place and using our heads to determine what we're going to do and using our minds to evaluate things, we don't often feel ourselves embodied. So I began to think of my role as a teacher of Tai Chi as a way of complementing or counterbalancing the extreme headiness of Western thinking and living. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. Before we jump into that, because that's you know, one of the main um, topics I wanted to explore with you, this, this kind of, uh, this disharmony between those two dimensions. Um, I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more about, about the actual technology of VR and how you've seen it change. Because um, from what I understand, you, you know, you wrote that, that first book, The Metaphysics of Virtual Reality in the early 90s. So you've been kind of watching these waves as they, as they come and go. 
And it seems like we're in a kind of resurgence uh, of interest in virtual reality um, with the Oculus Rift and, and, and various uh, other hardware that's coming out. And you know, the, the, the general sentiment seems to be, hey, VR is finally going to work. Um, I was wondering if you could you know, share your perspective on that, having kind of observed um, from, from very early days VR. Is it changing? Is it getting better? Do you think it actually is working at this point? Well, when we started uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, up into the 80s, there was a large experiment on the part of engineers to get this uh, three-dimensional experience of immersion, full perception of a 3D world. There was a lot of experiment going on at that time. What happened, I think, is the 90s uh, is the time when the art artists began to intervene and to try to shape what was happening in the virtual world. I wrote a book called Virtual Realism, which followed up on the metaphysics of virtual reality, talked about artists like Brenda Laurel, um, people like Myron Kruger and Marcus Novak, who were using the head-mounted displays and other forms of technology of, of immersion to try to shape it in a more aesthetically uh, pleasing and also in a, um, a deeper way than the engineers had imagined. So the 90s were, I think, the second wave of virtual reality, the first wave being simply the engineering uh, and the invention of a, the notion of a, of, of a three-dimensional surround world that followed your perception, that followed your body movement. Then I think now we, do, we are in this third wave where it's now reached a level, which is quite astounding, like the Oculus uh, Rift uh, using simply right now, it's uh, you can put a smartphone in like a... Samson Note 4 and have a headset experience that is amazing uh, in contrast to what we did in the early days of the early experiments. And the artistic vision is not realized yet completely because right now we're in this consumer uh, and commercial uh, se segment. I think uh, Oculus Rift is coming out in a commercial version next year. So it's going to be a while before some of the artistic experiments. Um, I worked at Art Center for 10 years with artists who were developing uh, different kinds of virtual environments. We, we emphasized in our experiments the use of avatars, which are not available right now in Oculus Rift. I mean, it's still uh, the commercial versions today are not yet up to that level, uh, although they're, they're from a visual viewpoint so much better and so much more. Uh, convincing and realistic. But the introduction of avatars, which is really important, I think, to the spirituality of the virtual worlds, because the avatars represent ourselves. They are us in the virtual world, virtual world as we are perceived and as we see ourselves in third person. So at any rate, that's something that is not even begun yet in the commercial phase, this third wave of virtual reality. You might say the third wave is 2015, just really starting to pick up. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it's still early days, and it sounds like in some ways uh, with this third wave, it's it's much more immersive in terms of the, the visual aspect, but it's uh, further behind in terms of the development of some of the kind of supplementary um, you know, pieces of, of the actual avatars and the user experiences and things like that. Definitely. I think it may take a century, at least several decades, before we see the commercial version being 
even up to the aesthetics of the 1990s. I'm talking about the artists who did groundbreaking work in those days. So we have yet quite a bit of time yet to see the software. And there are people, because of the investment now, there are people who are uh, pushing their way, trying to get into this uh, area of aesthetic shaping of the virtual environments of the future. Because the gaming, uh, the ego-based gaming, first-person gaming, it's just not really satisfying from an aesthetic point of view, uh, from a from a broader point of view of what could be accomplished. So uh, it, it may take a while before the investments are moved in that direction. Okay, interesting. And then it, it seems like you know, along with this third wave of virtual reality, the other thing I've, I've noticed just kind of following the commercial tech news is this development of, of what's being called augmented reality and that um, things like Google's uh, Magic Leap, the company they bought recently, or the Google Glass project or Microsoft's new HoloLens, you know, where there's a sort of virtual representations augmenting our actual physical um, reality. And I, I wondered if you sort of fit that within this larger... Um, category of virtuality or, or virtual worlds, or how does that kind of fit in with what you've been exploring with the VR stuff? Well, I think it does show a certain dimension of virtuality where there's this imposition, superimposition of data, of computerized animation and data on the perceptual field, uh, whether we're using glasses or contact lenses or other forms of uh, of interface. So that is a very uh, virtual window, as it were. It's a window that shows the outside world, but also virtuality at the same time. There's an experience you can have in the headset that Samson has put out, the VR gear headset that uh, is connected to the uh, Oculus Rift. And what it, the experience is one, if you choose on the menu, see the world, see through the VR into the world, you have a very interesting experience where you see the, the world around you on your desk or your body or the, the, the walls of your current environment. You see it through the VR headset, and it's like you're watching a movie. I mean, it's, it's, not, quite the, it's not the same as when you take the headset off. That's a kind of a shocking experience, but when you see through the VR... It's a kind of a intermediate <laughs> limbo land hmm. where you, and it's kind of fascinating to to watch it. It's almost like you're watching a movie of your own life. Oh wow! I mean, in some ways, you know, when I when I and I see them described, it almost seems like those two technologies are they're kind of converging on the same point from different directions of this sort of merging of of virtual and physical in some way. Is it does it seem like that to you that they're kind of coming at it from different directions, but they seem to be kind of heading in a similar trajectory? Definitely. Uh, that's, that's I think, a, a good intuition, a good hunch about it. But it may take a long time because mm. there's a certain kind of switch that happens when you turn off your own environment and you enter into the so-called immersive environment where you have no choice except what the software is showing you. Uh, there's a thrill to that, especially if the software is is well built. You get really excited because, well, you're maybe uh, you're on a spaceship, uh, seeing asteroids flying around you, meteors, 
and you're trying to go somewhere. I mean, it, it, it's a transportive experience. So being transported to another world is, is a switch that is, is unlike augmented reality. And it may take quite a while before we see how to blend those different aspects. Um, that's for the future. And I think it's an important uh, question that will be pursued and explored. Uh, we, we see no answers. We could not foresee, and certainly in 1990, that we could use a smartphone to put it into a helmet and see a virtual world at the high resolution that's now available. It's just impossible to predict. So same, same way with this convergence, uh, we have to try to nurture the future, but we can't, we can't foreordain it or, or really conceive of it totally. Yes, yes, that, that makes sense. There's, there's too many uh, unknowns to be able to, to predict that. Cool. So I wanted to get into the challenge that you brought up because that seems like one of the, you know, th- there's a lot of excitement right now about virtual reality. And I, I think, you know, there's also a lot of skepticism and a lot of uh, fear even when I talk with some people about it. Um, and, and one of the fears um, that I've heard, especially from folks who um, are doing some sort of contemplative practice, you know, they, they have some practice of embodiment, is like, what's going to happen when part of us is, like you said, in this one reality um, that, that feels quite, you know, immersive, quite real? And then there's another part of us that's like still sitting here at our desk or still, <laughs> still fat and, and, and like under, you know, under, under active, um, you know, and, and it's just like kind of sitting there. And you talk a little bit about this in a couple of the articles I, I read of yours. And I just want to kind of read a couple of those, uh, those clips and, and see, what, see what you have to say about this, because this seems like a very big uh, challenge. Um, so, so in one in one article, virtual reality and the tea ceremony, you write that the high speed dynamics and aggressive tempo of cyberspace brings with it a disharmony between the earth rooted biological self and the digitally trained mind. Um, the more we move into virtual worlds, the thinner becomes the umbilical cord that ties us to the earth. Um, and you also, uh, in another article, wrote about. Um, something that's already happening now, um, similar to jet lag and flight simulator sickness, um, the virtual reality gap between mind and body leads to alternative world syndrome, AWS, and alternative world disorder, AWD, where fragments of the psyche get stuck in one world while working in another. So these things already have acronyms. So if they have acronyms, we know it's serious business. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about this this challenge of the kind of the body and mind kind of being uh, plunged into two different worlds? And and what 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 kind of thing are we? I mean, yeah, is this something we need to seriously be looking at as we we start to play with even more immersive uh, virtual worlds? Well, I would I would imagine that any person skilled at meditation or just able to calm themselves down to count their breaths, for example, I imagine that they would be experiencing some of the high-speed thought process that we get from working on the web, on our cell phones, this kind of pressure to communicate. I think that the process of meditation is now contending and competing with something that is quite different. I think the little fragments of of websites come to us, forum comments keep coming to us. 
the internet is kind of in us, is being built more and more in us. So the idea of bringing ourselves empty point, uh, a point of reflection, from the Taoist point of view, of being reborn by doing our practices, by being regenerated and refreshed through our practices, it's becoming, in some sense, more difficult. On the other hand, the extreme can also show us that we need to reverse this process. We need to deliberately take charge and do a reversal of our body amnesia. Because sometimes we just, we, we're totally in our thoughts and we, we forget that we're present here and now. Eckhart Tolle's work is very popular in this regard. So there's a kind of thing which I, I see in, as a Tai Chi teacher, I call it reverse shamanism. You know, in the old shamanism, there was this effort to bring people to see what's beyond the visible world, uh, what is beyond uh, life and death, to, to experience those realms. So uh, in reverse shamanism, what we're trying to do is not take people to a spiritual realm, but to take them from the intellectual internet realm into the re-experiencing of their physical energy and their connection with the earth. Yes. That's, that's, that's a really interesting concept. And, you know, as you, as you even describe that, I, I've, I, it's making me think of, of conversations I've had with, with folks who are clearly in the millennial generation, you know, early 20s, late teens, and and sometimes when they're exposed to some of the basic you know Buddhist principles like impermanence or you know the the transients of experience, they're like, yeah, I totally get that. That's the reality I've grown up in, and you know, and they're sort of you know in some cases a little bit of an arrogance of like, I don't need to learn that. I already know that. Um, and, and in some ways, I think it might be true. But what you're saying is very interesting. This reverse shamanism of well, that might be true on some level, but what about the biological? The physical level, the the non conceptual dimension of our experience, you know that that's that seems to be where where the gap really is. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. That idea of reverse shamanism. I think even yeah, your your point about um, how the impermanence is is not a lesson we need to learn. There's the other side of the stability yes. that. We experience as a, as meditators to to be open to even the feeling of gravity of the earth lifting us, letting our muscles relax sufficiently to feel the chair, to feel the floor under our feet, to become more present. Uh, that in our own lives to become more present. So there's a, a term in, in virtual world studies where we talk about telepresence, meaning being present somewhere else. Uh, wonderful idea of, of Eckhart Tolle to become present now and to reclaim our our physical selves. So I think Tai Chi has that function of, uh, among other things, yoga, of course, and many other forms of meditation that that follow, like Vipassana meditation, following the body uh, of uh, given to us. That's a form of stability in a sense that our very impermanent and transient, uh, rapid-paced uh, world doesn't doesn't often allow us to see. Yes, that that makes a lot of sense. It makes me think too of the you know the practice of shamatha or concentration, where you're just developing this deep stability on say the breath, 
or on a single object and, and being able to really be absorbed in that for a long, long period of time. I mean, that's the opposite of what, what seems to be happening, you know, more generally where, where attention spans are decreasing um, rather than increasing uh, collectively. So, so that's a, another challenge for the notion of using virtual reality as a meditation tool. This, is, this has come up throughout the history of VR uh, in different ways. There have been little devices, people using uh, lucid dreaming or other forms of uh, awareness to, to use virtual reality to have a breakthrough. Yes. And counting, counting the breath and using, using the uh, autonomic process as a way of uh, uh, giving feedback, creating a feedback loop yes. to enable the person to be deep in their awareness. Yes. And so, so you see that as a challenge to being able to do that with virtual, with virtual worlds. Definitely. And there's not even the beginning of it yet. Uh, we don't have people yet in, in, who are involved in the creative process who can bring to bear their understanding of this. So it's going to be a while. It may be decades before we see it. Uh, there have been theorists, uh, uh, McKay Rogers, Myth Seeker, many others have ventured forth uh, to try to create a more meditative virtual reality concept. But it's, it, most of it has stumbled and not, not taken hold. So it's, it may be quite a while before the commercial versions have sufficient funding to be able to expand and, and meet a new kind of demand. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.